Coming up next, the booking reads The Trumpet of the Swan. Hey everybody, Nathan here, your humble and obedient host. Oh boy, man, that felt weird not saying the title of the show up front. What if I just never say it? I think that's great. What if I never tell people what they're listening to? It. I mean, if they're smart, if they were paying attention, they could have heard hear me say it in the little bumper at the beginning. Yeah. But they might not be that smart. They might have <laughs> accidentally subscribed to this thing. So let me start by introducing my good friends. My name is Nathan Alberson, your humble and obedient host. I guess I'm my first good friend. My second good friend is Brandon Chasteen. He's a scholar who's a baller of reading. He's a big fan of E.B. White. He's about six foot. More like 5'10". 5'10"? All right. Well, you know, (laughs) be generous. (laughs) He gave me a couple inches, but thanks. (laughs) He's about 150 pounds. Yeah, that's right. Pure muscle? Yep. All of it? All of it. He's got a a glint, a charming glint in his eyes. Oh, that's right, Nathan. And a rich Irish brogue. Yeah. I can't do. Oh, here's the Irish brogue. <laughs> the rich Irish brogue there. Hey, Nathan. <laughs> that is rich. He's Brandon Chastine. Hey. And we love him a lot. He's, many would say, the heart and soul of the bookening. And they'd be wrong, but they'd, they'd say that. Now, Brandon, why don't you introduce, Yeah. in the great circle of podcasting, why don't you introduce the, the third circle of the podcasting that moves us all? Why don't you, oh, listen to my voice? What is I, the, uh, I don't know why I even let you guys talk. It is the true Elton John of this podcast. Is he the Elton John of this podcast? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> the rock star is what I meant. Yeah, but. I know. He does <laughs> wear giant mean? platform <laughs> shoes and weird glasses. My dad loves Elton John. Doesn't everybody's dad love Elton John? Yeah, I think so. He's, he's kind of a, dad. Uh, Am I supposed to introduce him? Yeah, yeah. Did you introduce him yet? No. He, oh, yeah. Well, he's Elton John of podcasting. Yeah, he's a rock star himself uh-huh. with the platform shoes. His name is Pastor, mm-hmm. who's a master. Yeah, his name is <laughs> Pastor. His first ma- name is Pastor. Who's a master? <laughs> who's a master? His middle name. <laughs> Fun fact, we've been fooling you all along, letting you believe that I'm a pastor. Nope, my first name is just Pastor. Pastor, yeah. His middle name is who's a master of reading. Yeah. And his last name is Jacob Mensel. His last name is Jacob Mensel. He's a pastor who's a master of reading, Jacob Mensel. He's a pastor who's a master of reading. Oh, boy. He's a pastor who's a master of reading, Jacob Mensel. And he's a good man. We like he him is. a lot. And he's hard to find sometimes. Is he? Sometimes. A good man sometimes is hard to find. Yeah. That's my understanding. Yeah. You guys remember when we went on that joyride and <laughs> our family, families were brutally murdered by <laughs> a serial killer? <laughs> yeah, luckily we escaped. No. <laughs> uh, that was not a good day. Not a good day for the book. <laughs> I'm sorry, folks. Like I said, I really didn't sleep last night. And I don't know what I'm going to say about this book. I really don't. I, I, th- these guys could probably convince me to go in any number of directions about this book. Now, let's talk about it. We're talking about Trumpet of the Swan by T.S. Eliot. How does a swan sound? It's a trumpet. It's a trumpeter swan. Is it? That's how Ferdinand sounds or whatever his name is. What's the swan's name in this thing? Oh, boy. Can anybody name the name of the swan in Trumpet of the Swan, the book that we read? To be fair, probably several weeks, if not months ago now, is when we all read it. Yeah, a long time ago. Horus? Jasper? Horus sounds right. Jake, one, two, three, say the name of the swan. Does it start with an F? No. 
Is it like a normal per- people kind of name? Uh, Lewis. Lewis. Louis Armstrong. I should remember that. It is Lewis. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, there we go. I did read this book, folks. So did everyone else. Now, what's that sound? Oh, it's the sound of the guns going off, indicating the contextual Texan. Brandon is going to give us some much-needed context on this work. He's from Texas, hence the moniker. Brandon, what do you want to tell us about The Trumpet of the Swan by Thomas Elliot? <laughs> T.S. Elliot? Is that who this is by? No. That was weird. So I was trying to make I was trying to do a joke like I was trying to say the initials wrong, obviously on purpose, but it's weird that my brain made it T.S. Eliot. I guess he just shares in common with E.B. White the fact that they both have two initials. Yeah, sort of I mean, they lived during similar periods. They were both in the early times. <laughs> the early, the old times. <laughs> they used to start fire yeah. by rubbing two sticks yeah. together, <laughs> drag women back to their I caves. Mean, they were both in their prime in the 30s, 40s. Mm-hmm. T.S. Eliot a little bit before then. E.B. White's not a true modernist. I mean, not everybody can be. <laughs> no, not everyone. <laughs> everyone in Brandon's context can be one way or another. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this guy, he happened to live his childhood through modernism. What are the important... So if people... We're going to keep this episode short and sweet, yeah. right? This is our one episode on Trumpet of the Swan. And so if people want an extensive background to E.B. White, they can go and listen to our Charlotte Webb episode. I have a vague memory that the context of that one was particularly fun and interesting because we talked about The New Yorker. We talked about all kinds of stuff. Yeah. And so... talk about. I've been busy lately. I don't want to rehash all that. Ah, Who wants to rehash that? They can just go back and listen, right? We can send them back to our back catalog, right? Yeah. We've never done that before. Every once in a while. Every once in a while. You'll give me a pass today. Yeah, I don't want to pull that that trigger too often. But But yeah, and so, but there are some key things to keep in mind about E.B. White as we read this book or talk about this book. One of them is that he had, so in that episode, we talked about he had a mildly privileged background. He grew up in these nicer areas in the New England, in New England. But one thing that he always had was access to nature. His dad would take him camping or, but especially his older brother, Stanley Hart White, uh, taught him to both read or to love reading and to explore the natural world. Mm-hmm. And so he gets a, got a lot of the things that would then influence his... All of his books. Really. Well, yeah, but especially like this. I mean, this, this is where they're going out to the lake and they do this once a year. And so if you know anything about E.B. White and have read his essays one of his greatest essays is called once again to the lake wonderful essay recommend everyone once more to the lake once more to the lake yeah yeah because it's echoing that shakespeare line once more to the breach yeah what a great essay and that talks about his childhood memories of his father taking him to uh this lake home that they had and the the memories that he has as a child of swimming in that lake and all the great things that they, all the great memories he has of the house, the stains on the, the smell of the wood. And it's just a, it's a wonderful little essay. And then how as an old man, older man, he tries to remember those childhood memories and some of them come back, but also they're through the lens of now being an older man and the sadness that comes with that and the maturity that comes with that. It's a great essay. It's all about growing up and I highly recommend reading it Mm -hmm. and we'll get, we'll get more to his style later, but All that to say, if you go and you read that essay or you look up some about his brother, you see that his childhood, he was immersed in this sort of world and stuff that would give rise to his children's literature later in life. Even though that's not the first thing he did, he was not known as a children's writer when he he first wrote Stuart Little or Charlotte's Web. But he had had those experiences and those background, that background that would eventually give him those books. And give us those books. And so one thing, one of my favorite quotes from him is that he told someone, let me see, I can find it here for you real fast. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, he told um, Kate DiCamillo in a four. So this comes from one of the forwards to Charlotte's Web. She says, he says, all that I hope to say in books, all that I ever hope to say is that I love the world. And so that's one thing that I think we all agreed on when we read Charlotte's Web is that when he writes, you can really see the world through the eyes of a man who just really loves the world. He loves this world that he's created. He loves his family. He loves these animals. And he just loves the, the story he's telling. Mm-hmm. And that's, that comes through in his writing. And so, but yeah, um, I mean, who, you guys have read Once More to the Lake, or at least I know you have, Nathan. Did we, did we teach it together or something? I think like so. That? Yeah, we taught it together. That's right. And so, I mean, it's reading that essay, you realize that is what he's trying to get at with the early chapters of the Trumpet of the Swan, mm-hmm. right? He's trying to get at that feeling. Here's the boy who's being taken to the woods with his father and exploring together, and then they come upon the swan. And then it gets psychedelic after that. Yeah. <laughs> but... <laughs> It's kind of like a jazz piece, right? <laughs> yes, it is. Huh. Uh, I hadn't thought of it in that those terms before. The story itself is kind of like jazz. Yeah, yeah, it it's is. kind of just free exploring, man. <laughs> <laughs> Which is interesting because he really wasn't known to be that kind of author. Because just a quick background to who he who he became, who E.B. White was. He graduated from Cornell University, was the editor of some of the papers there, and then he went off to have the career as a writer. And he was one of these guys who was like in the right place at the right time, right? Uh, T.S. Eliot, around the same, you know, just a few years before, right place at the right time and helping to found modernism. He was, T.S. Eliot is not modernism any more than any other poet could have been modernism at the time. Right. In, in other words, you know, it was it was one of those watershed moments where it's just, you just happened to be there at the right time. And so he was there at the right time in the sense that he had had a bit of a career as a writer for some papers right after he graduated from high school, but then the New Yorker was founded. Catherine Angle the literary editor. She's the one who recommended him to Harold Ross, the kind of crotchety guy who had started The New Yorker, uh, this business go-getter. And at first he was wary of hiring E.B. White, but then he decided to. And uh, E.B. White became a staff writer, and that was who he was for the rest of his life. Just a staff, He was a staff writer for The New Yorker. And what he did with The New Yorker, along with another wonderful essayist called Joseph Mitchell, mm. was kind of found what we know as the airy, breezy, but surprisingly difficult to write American essay, mm-hmm. right? I mean, is that a good way to describe it? Yeah, it's just, so. there's, yeah. there's a bit of magic to it. And it's trying to write an E.B. White. John Updike later in life would, would be able to write that kind of essay. There's that one guy that people think can, but really can't all that well. Sedaris? Yeah, David Sedaris. He gets close. He's, he's good. He's good, but he's not quite... I think when he's on his A game, right. he can. I, when he's on I his A game. I don't just like everything that he does. I, shouldn't, I, I should qualify that. By I would saying say when I he's have on his A game, he's funnier than E.B. White. Maybe not a better writer, but okay. a yeah. better humorist. Maybe I should qualify that by saying I haven't read that much Sedaris, so maybe I should just back off and not be so... Um, not, not assume someone sucks. Just yeah, be, yeah, just because he's not E.B. White. <laughs> so I'm sorry, Sedaris. But there's a sense in which everybody that writes for The New Yorker is trying to write an E.B. White piece. I mean, yeah. he, he set the template pretty much. Yeah. You're going to start with a little anecdote and then you're going to back up and... Yeah. And have... eventually it'll come to a sort of thesis at the end, mm-hmm. which is more just a contemplation of life. So, um, and that's exactly what Once More to the Lake, that's what it does. And that's what the Joseph Mitchell essays do as well. Mm-hmm. And they're just... But they read like a hybrid of a personal memoir and third person narration, yeah. usually. And they're just, it's these wonderful things that we now know the New Yorker for and all these other, um, and the New Yorker still does it. Like I remember reading this one fascinating 
And just thinking about the New Yorker essays I've read, there's one about this guy who kept trying to go and cross the Antarctic, like follow this one path of this guy that he um, admired. And it was about his attempt to do this over and over again. And then finally at the end he dies, Mm -hmm. but it's just, it's a, it's a captivating the way these stories are told. And it's like, this is the New Yorker style. And then there's also just his style of writing, which is clean, but also very not clean in the sense that it doesn't have language, <laughs> right. but it's, uh, it's like Hemingway uses as few words as possible, but uses the right words. Omits needless ones. Yeah. Omits needless ones. And that, I was going to get to that in just a minute. Yeah. So, well, we may as well, while he was at Cornell, a lot of his writing was influenced by a professor that he had named Strunk. And later in life, E.B. White would be asked to take Strunk's little booklet that he used to sell at Cornell for like five cents on the rules of writing and the rules of grammar. And he was asked to turn that to write his own forward and afterward to it and then publish it. And so he did. And now that's who a lot of people are surprised to find out that's who the white is of Strunk and White. It is E.B. White. And that's because a lot of the rules that we have for modern American writing, that's um, omit needless words, use strong images, use strong verbs, these sorts of rules that we now, that active dominate. Active voice versus. Active voice versus passive voice. That's right. These rules that dominate our writing today, they come from E.B. White, his style. And if you read one of his essays, you can see it. His, his sentences are just perfectly balanced. Mm-hmm. They have their sparse use of words, but every word seems to just hit the perfect tone. Right, His nouns and his verbs all do the work they need to do. And when you have an adjective or an adverb thrown in, it's because it needs to be there, not because he's being lazy. Mm-hmm. And it's just wonderful to see. And so a lot of that very carefully wrought. So we get it from two places. Hemingway gets a lot of the credit for that. But I think kind of the, even though he's not seen as subversive and like underground, I think more of the underground influence on that would be the E.B. White and the New Yorker. Mm-hmm. People like to, Ernest Hemingway is just the easy place to point because he's the iceberg theory and all that. But I think that a lot of that influence comes from Strunk and White, from E.B. White. So yeah, so he was a he was a very influential figure on American letters. And I bring up Ernest Hemingway and T.S. Eliot because they were writing around the same time. And I think that if you were to identify like the three major American writers who would influence poetry, would influence short stories. So like every... New Yorker short story wants to be a Hemingway short story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Every New Yorker essay wants to be an E.B. White, Joseph Mitchell essay, right? And I think every, so even the NPR essayists like David Sedaris, who, because it was my old knee-jerk reaction to just kick at everything that's popular. <laughs> so <laughs> I apologize for that, people. I by no means think that David Sedaris is bad. If you want to get into it for two seconds, I will say I like David Sedaris. I think he's talented. I think he's funnier than any of the men we've mentioned. I think he's got a chip on his shoulder about his dad and sexuality and being, lots gay, of, and being gay and stuff. So there you go. makes him pretty unpleasant sometimes. But yeah, he's a very talented man. I did read, I did listen to an NPR once where he was reading one of his essays about being in a morgue and I thought it was hilarious. So there you go. I don't know why I said that, people. So anyways, but he is, the point with that was he is heavily influenced, and I think he would probably admit it, by the New Yorker style. Mm-hmm. NPR is influenced by the New Yorker style, and the New Yorker style came from E.B. White, right? E.B. White was so, and so it's just really important to understand that's who he was. And because of that influence, he was able to kind of start a side writing legacy as a children's author. Mm-hmm. So he had the three children's books. He had the Stuart Little, which was his first book, and it's a lot, in style, Stuart Little is very similar to what, trumpet of the swan is i think a good 
I was going to bring this up in a little minute. In a little minute. I'm trying to hit all the points I wanted to hit because I don't have my notes in front of me, mm-hmm. but I think I'm hit, hitting them. Yeah. So it's a picaresque novel. And what the picaresque novels are is it's it goes way back to kind of Spanish, Europe, early European influences. Like Tristram Shandy is a picaresque novel. And all it is, it's about a character who goes out and has random adventures. So the Pickwick Papers is a picaresque as well. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem to follow much of a plot beyond just the character himself is fun to follow and watch have these things happen to. And Stuart Little's very much like that. And in many ways, so is The Trumpet of the Swan, mm-hmm. right? It doesn't really seem to have a linear plot. No, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> Instead, you're watching these things happen. And so a good, a good way to understand this, the difference is The Hobbit, is episodic, but the Hobbit still develops. Mm-hmm. Picaresque is episodic and doesn't really develop. Picaresque would be like Bilbo just goes for a walk and just random things. Random start things happen. It's a little bit too much of that pipe weed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> <So> things. <laughs> your love of the halfling's leaf has clou- clearly clouded your senses. And so you can see sort of that influence there, and it it, it makes sense that someone who wrote the style of essay that E. B. White wrote would end up writing those sorts of novels. Mm-hmm. Charlotte's Web is the outlier, and I think the best, so not to show too many of my cards here, but easily the best E.B. White novel, because it follows a linear trajectory. You have a story that it's following, and that's unusual for, what, I mean, even like, um, once again, to the lake, I re- when I read that with my students, they're all like, well, how is this an essay? Like, it doesn't seem to follow any th- logic here, right? It just seems to go from one point to the other and just making these observations about what he loved about the lake. And then it has this thing tagged on at the end, like, and that's where the meaning's supposed to come from. And if you're not willing to go along for the ride, then you're not really understanding E.B. White. He mm-hmm. wants you to just go on this like walk with him. And Stuart Little and Trumpet of the Swan both have that feeling to them. And so I do think they share a lot in common with his essays, more in common with his essays than I think Charlotte's Web, for example, would. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I said for example there, but <laughs> shares in common with them. So anything you want to add so far? I was just thinking we're about to do in a couple weeks, uh, I don't know exactly when folks, but uh, Mogham, Moon and Sixpence. And that's a pretty good point of comparison because you can see he's cleaner and more omitting needless words than a Victorian novelist would have been. But yeah. he hasn't quite hit that perfect Hemingway, E.B. White synthesis where he's actually going to cut out those two boring chapters at the beginning. Yeah. Well, he's earlier too, and that's part of it. Yeah. I found myself, I know this isn't what we're talking about, but it was a really interesting study in the development of style. It felt like Fitzgerald to me, or proto-Fitzgerald. Yeah, it does. It felt like a, a rough draft of a Fitzgerald novel. Right. Whereas Fitzgerald would go through and take out a bunch of stuff that yeah. Mogham just didn't, didn't think yeah. to. Or... Because he's about a decade before. Our obsession with all of every, every single sentence being clean and perfect and well-balanced, is it's, kind of, it's a very American style of fiction. Mm-hmm. So, And that would then influence a lot of the other things that would happen. But like Tolstoy's not that way. Jane Austen's not really that way. Shakespeare definitely isn't that way. No, one of the great things about the translation of Tolstoy that we read is that it enabled Tolstoy to be just as random and repetitive and vulgar and over the top and understated and all over the place as he actually was. But it can, the American style can give you some great writing. Oh, yeah. Gives you E.B. White. It gives you Hemingway, Fitzgerald, Dennis Johnson. Don't know if we can say his name. <laughs> Raymond Chandler, I'll throw in there. Yeah, that's right. So, so just not so much Steinbeck. 
No, Steinbeck is an intentional, uh, I'm not doing that, guys. How about Twain? <laughs> yeah. They're kind of outliers, yeah. Twain's before these guys, though. He would have yeah, been more Victorian. He's, well. Twain is that it, for his time. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. in the sense that he's reacting to Victorianism, he's a, he is a proto. What if you've ever read his essay mocking James Fenmore Cooper and some of the more yeah. over the top? Twain was like, let me show you how it's done. I'm going to be really like, I'm not going to go over the top like you, yeah. those idiots do. Yeah. That's a fun essay. That is a great essay. I like to read that with my uh, Lane Comp students. And it ruined, I mean, I can't read James Fenmore Cooper for that reason. Like, it just, it, it seems so stupid. Like, Twain did Oh, he his is job. stupid, yeah. He's, <laughs> it's like, I can't read I mean, the, the leather stocking tales. Is that what they are? Yeah, I, I, I enjoy things like that. Like, they're purple and they're ridiculous. Dickensian. Dickensian. They are Dickensian. Dickens was the best of all those guys, yeah. easily. Yes, Jake, I admit, there's not a whole lot of difference between even like, ah, well, there, I guess there's a pretty big difference between like an Alexander Dumas and Dickens, but they still, in, a, in the sense that they both just like to tell a story and that's mm -hmm. primarily what they're doing. And then if you just let yourself have fun and not get too carried away with style concerns, then you'll have fun. <laughs> I mean, E.B. White. <laughs> <laughs> Coming back at me there a little bit. <laughs> Well, I'm not you, a style snot. I'm not a style snot. I know you're not, which is fun to accuse you of being one. <laughs> Jake the style snot. Yeah, yeah. Really funny. <laughs> Constantly throwing Harry Potter across the room. Yeah. Every time she t attaches an adverb to one what of them, he said. What is this garbage? I mean, I know that every is. time we see someone who's inferior, you're the first one to jump and say, I just wish this was Tolstoy. <laughs> 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 Pretty good, Dr. Seuss, but not quite Tolstoy. Let's <laughs> let's face it here. <laughs> so there's really only one other thing that I wanted to bring up about E.B. White from our prior stuff that we talked about. Yeah. So I think we got a lot more into the history of the New Yorker and stuff in that episode. That's that's where you can go and have some fun there. I don't think it's necessary for this. Mm. Um, we've said pretty much everything we want to, except that we did... E.B. White is one of those strange literary figures who actually seemed to be a decent man, mm -hmm. right? And so he married um, his wife, oh, what was her name? Catherine, oh, Catherine Angel White, so the one who got him hired. Right, So there you go. Yeah, <laughs> there you have it. I just had said her name. So she was the literary editor for The New Yorker, and they eventually would get married, and they would have this nice little country house together where he would... They would write and have this life that seemed like every writer's dream, you know? And so, but he seemed, he seemed to be a fairly decent man. His children, as when he got old, older, seemed to really love him and appreciate the memories they had with him. And in fact, his son would be, so I read for the last episode, uh, the last episode on his E.B. White that we did, I read this biography of him and it started out by saying that these school children wanted to go and visit E.B. White's home, but they had really closed it off and weren't letting people come. But E.B. White's son wanted them to come so that he could show them this home where his father had lived, the man who had written Charlotte's Web and meant so much to him and so much to these children. Because so there's just this sweetness that was there with his children and his family. That the amount of authors we've talked about that have untortured relationships with their children and their wives are, we could probably count on one hand. I mean, yeah. I mean, even children's authors, right? And that's kind of the, where we went, but we won't go there this time. We won't talk about Milne or nah. Christopher Robin or anything like that. Nope. <laughs> nope. I'm not gonna We're not even going to mention it. No, won't even say their name. You can go back and you can listen to that, that episode where we made a lot, of, a lot out of that, I mm -hmm. think. So, but there is one th interesting fact about him that uh, he was very paranoid and very anxious about being 
and the limelight. And so there's the story. Well, I think you told the story about him climbing out the back window of a hotel to escape or something, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Right. And so there's also one of the stories where he just would not come out of his hotel room. He was so anxious and he was like, I think he vomited. Like he was just that, he was just a very paranoid, anxious man about the amount of publicity and fame that he had. And, And at heart, he wanted to be just a quiet. The closest parallel we've had to him, I think, as far as a literary figure goes, is Tolkien. Mm-hmm. That in the in the end, he just seemed to be a man who was happy at home, happy with his wife and children, and loved to tell stories and loved to write. And that's who E.B. White was. And I think he's a great actually. Just now thinking of this, but I think he's a great parallel to Tolkien because I think they both had that in common. Mm-hmm. That they both in the end just loved to write and loved to entertain people with well told stories. Well, and they both seem completely content to write about what they want to write about, and it really doesn't matter. Yeah. And sometimes it works, and sometimes you get either Tom Bombadil or you get the old uh, Louis the Swan. <laughs> Louis the Swan. So, well, C.S. Lewis is another good point of comparison, just mm. in terms of. Yeah. Some people know who E.B. White is because they've read Charlotte's Web, and some people because they've read The New Yorker, and some because they've read Strunk and White, realizing that that's all the same That's all person, the same guy, yeah. Is the same kind of awakening that people have when they grow up and realize that C.S. Lewis was this great essayist and yeah, apologist right. and, and not also just children's guy who wrote yep. Narnia. Yeah, my wife is going nuts for C.S. Lewis right now because she just read that hideous strength, which was really the first time she'd given Lewis the time of day and she loved it. And so she circled back to the Straight Space trilogy and she's reading some other things. Like she might eventually hit Narnia, but it's not going to be at all her point of entry. And I wouldn't even be surprised if she doesn't like it that much simply because She'll have. She's not a child. She'll have sucked the nutrients that she needs from C.S. Lewis. By the time she gets to Narnia, it'll just feel like, oh, well, he's doing the same thing he did better in that hideous strength or. Similar to my trajectory. Yeah. So. Well. Well, All right. There's you some context. There's me some context. Now let's talk about this (laughs) book. (laughs) Oh, no. It's the baggage plane going over there. Indicating baggage check, the part of the show where we talk about the baggage that we bring to this. Jake, what baggage did you bring to Trumpet of the Swan, T of the S? I like E.B. White. I've not read this book before. Have you read Stuart Little? I don't think so. I'm familiar enough with Stuart Little, but... I know he has the voice of Marty McFly. Definitely does have the voice of And I know Hugh Laurie is his dad, and I think Gina Davis is his mom. And he goes on lots of fun CGI (laughs) adventures. That's what I know about Stuart Little. I think there might be an evil cat or something. Yeah. Played by Nathan Lane. Is it really? Yeah. (laughs) Of course it is. (laughs) I get the... Honestly, it's Stuart Little and uh, the Beverly Cleary... Uh, the mouse on the motorcycle. Mouse on the motorcycle stuff. Loved the mouse Mixed on the up. motorcycle back in the day. She turned 104 yesterday. Clary? She's still alive. She's still alive. She turned 104 yesterday. Wow. She was trending on Twitter. Are you sure it wasn't one of those articles like, not to accuse you of being stupid, but I just want to check. It wasn't one of those articles where it was like, Mary Shelley mm. tunes 250 today. <laughs> look it up. All right. I'm going to look it up. Jake, I believe you. And I- She is an American writer. Is that what- <laughs> The internet says? So, I mean, that's what Wikipedia says. And usually they're pretty good about saying is versus was. She had, does not have a death wow. date, but she does have a birthday. That's crazy. 104, 1916. She looks like Flannery O'Connor. Yeah, she does. She looks very much like Flannery O'Connor with a creepy cat. Huh. That's crazy. She's still pumping out Ramona stories and stuff like that? I loved Ramona the past. My mom used to read those to us. I wasn't such a big Ramona person, but I loved the mouse on the motorcycle. Yeah. Ramona was too girly for me. <laughs> Uh, Brandon, well, Ramona was kind of a brat too. I mean, you you wouldn't want to actually have Ramona for your sister. That's what I always kind of thought. 
Brandon, you're, yeah. you're baggage. I... Wait, I have to ask Jake. Jake, would you consider yourself to be an E.B. White fanboy or just kind of a, eh, he's good? Or I think we could, Brandon's probably going to be a fanboy, if I had to guess. Um, Where would you rank your love of E.B. White? I, he's up there. I, I, Charlotte, Charlotte. Charlotte. Charlie's Web. Charlie's Web, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Charlie Web 4. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> Charlotte's Web is one of my favorite children's books of all time. Drunken White is a huge influence in my life. Absolutely. And E.B. White essays are great. I don't really ever think, oh, I know what I want to do. I want to go read some E.B. White. But he, when it comes to somebody who I would love to emulate, he's probably the first person I think of. Amen to that. Yep. Brandon? Yeah, I love E.B. White. I am a big fanboy. I would did, love did to be able to write with his clarity and precision. Was that the question? Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, what's your baggage? My baggage. Did, did you guys both discover him? No, young? I grew up with E.B. White. I grew up with Charlotte's Web. My mom would read that to us very frequently and very fond memories of having her read that out loud as a boy. But I didn't read anything else by him until I started reading some of his essays because you brought them up mm-hmm. and said he was a great essayist. And then I also before that had been introduced to Strunk and White and loved Strunk and White. And it wasn't until we did Charlotte's Web last year that I then, because I think that was when I was getting into the kick of reading everything by anyone that I liked mm-hmm. that we did. I read everything by Ishiguro. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I read both Stuart Little and Trumpet of the Swan then. So I liked them. Yeah. I thought Trumpet of the Swan was weird. It is. And we'll, we'll talk about it in a second. Yeah. Did you grow up with? Charlotte's Web, Jake, or yeah. anything? Yeah. I think, I could be wrong, but I, I want to put Charlotte's Web in the category of book that I read uh, in Mrs. Culver's class alongside Johnny Tremaine and uh, Wrinkle in Time. Well, that certainly bolsters your argument for Johnny Tremaine being too sophisticated because Johnny Tremaine is way above what Charlotte's Web is yeah. trying to do. I, but it may have been a younger class where we did that. I don't have a, I mean... I know that Wrinkle in Time and Johnny Tremaine were Mrs. Culliver's fifth grade class because I hated it and her for it. Mm-hmm. But I don't have any bad memories of Charlotte's Web. I just remember loving it whenever I got it. When you say you hated it, you mean the monstrous entity that Meg White has to fight at the end of yeah, that's what Wrinkle I in Time. Yeah. You were so invested in how awesome that book was that yeah. you hated it. Meg Wallace, but yes. Meg Wallace, yeah, Meg White. <laughs> the drummer <laughs> from The White Stripes. <laughs> you remember when she has to fight <laughs> the clown from Stephen King. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I would watch that. I would watch that too. <laughs> Pretty cool. That was her name, right? Jack's sister or wife or whatever she was. Everybody always speculated. Meg? I don't know. Meg White? Yeah. Yeah, she's Maybe a drummer. That's right. That sounds right. Yeah. Thanks. Jack and Meg. That's right. Now, and, and and did we ever figure out whether she was his wife or his sister? Uh, I think they left that ambiguous on purpose. Ambiguous on purpose. I think we found out she was uh, actually his wife. I'm sure the internet could tell us, but who cares? I really like... E.B. White. I mean, E.B. White actually is the kind of person that I will be like, oh, I should read some E.B. White for pleasure. And specifically, elements of style. I have many times in my life just sat down, curled up on the couch with a blanket and read elements of snile, of snile, (laughs) (laughs) elements of smile. We're Uh, all doing good talking today. Yeah, we're all doing good talking today. We talk real good. We talk real good. Me talk pretty one day. That's a David Sedaris book, I think. Yep. I elements of stuff. Yeah, no, own, own it. it. You own it. Yeah. Oh, oh, I thought you were telling me to own the fat. Like <laughs> it is a, <laughs> a book by David Sedaris. No, just <laughs> Jake got, owns I got that, book. that one. Yeah, I remember. I was there when you bought it. 
We went to Half Bright Brooks, Half Pice Books. Yeah. You were going on vacation and you needed some books and you found that one. I, the writing is so good, even just in elements of style. For the longest time, I didn't actually have a book of essays by E.B. White. So if I wanted that, that hit, that drug, that hit of Walter White methamphetamine, I would have to just read elements of style. So I, I love that last essay. There's so many classic turns of phrase in that thing. Oh yeah, it's a good one. Um, that afterward. And even just those little paragraphs that I don't know how much Strunk did and how much White did, but that little paragraph on omitting needless words is a joyfully wonderful example of omitting needless words. It says so much yep. with so little. And he is a rock star as far as, I mean, he is the kind of guy that, I'm never interested in what he's talking about. I do not care about rural life. I don't care about animals. I don't care about all that kind of pastoral stuff that he's always writing about. I do not care. In fact, it's actively a turnoff. I don't want to read about those things. I really don't care. I consider myself to be an urban, urbane man who doesn't go outside and doesn't read about people that go outside. But I don't, no romance to the farm life for me. No Wendell Berry, none of that stuff. Don't care. In fact, actively don't like, if you can't tell from my voice. But E.B. White is so good that it's just like, I don't care what this song's about. I just want to hear the guitar solo kind of thing. It's like, this guy can make it right about anything. And it's not just okay, it's exhilarating. It's really good. That being said, <laughs> let's talk about Trumpet of the Swan. <laughs> uh... <laughs> What did you guys think about Trumpet of the Swan? It was something. Yeah. You know, the- it, it tells a really weird line of not having a story that I care about at all or characters that I much care about without being an active turnoff or anything or, or without being unenjoyable mm-hmm. to read. And it's kind of hard to. No, I think that's probably the right way really of describing describe it. it. Right. Like, I, that there's nothing about this story that stuck with me that I cared about at all. Lewis, Lewis has to I, fall I in love with Serena, though. No, he doesn't have to fall in love with Serena. He has to figure out how to get Serena to be attracted oh, right, to yeah. a duck that can't <laughs> honk his horn. <laughs> it's the eternal <laughs> struggle. A swan, yeah. a swan, as it were. I, I mean, I don't know. I, I grew up with swans in my neighborhood. I don't know if they were trumpeter swans, but we had swans in my neighborhood all the time. Swans are mean. Are swans anything like geese? Uh, they don't. They're not messy like geese. But are they they're vicious ag- and aggressive? Aggressive and yeah. So you have to be careful with swans. They're pretty, but you don't mess with them. He does some something that I think is sort of true to life with the bravado of dad swan. They'll... That feels like that that he does in Charlotte's Web, you know, with the yeah. with the duck or whatever. Um, it seems true to their personality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It seems to really capture part of the personality. The grace of mom and the bluster of dad. Yeah. Swans swans are that way. And they feel that way, maybe. I don't know. So I, I think he gets a kick out of doing that sort of thing. That, but... but then at a certain point, it's like, Lewis is just going to get start speaking English. And... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was weird. It, it makes a turn. Like Charlotte's Web, you always kind of have plausible... Like, you're not supposed to think too much about it, but you kind of, in the back of your mind, you know, maybe the little girl's just making this up. It's not like these creatures really talk exactly. It's kind of magical, but there's also this Calvin and Hobbes kind of thing of it all. But there's no, (laughs) 
It's all uh, very literal, <laughs> thuddingly literal. Swan has a slate, and he spells words on it. I mean, he I went to okay. school, had to learn. Here's the argument against me. Charlotte writes the words in the web. But still, I think maybe you guys will agree with me. Charlotte's web walks that it, walks it, that magical line. It's got that magical real element yeah. to it. Yeah, <laughs> you, you don't know quite if it's real or not. Whereas, <laughs> this, Swan is well, just... No, no, I mean, he's no, making Charlotte's money. Charlotte's web feels like a just a kid's book where animals talk to me. Yeah. And... But they don't like, talk the way humans talk, and they can't. I mean, I don't know. There's a fable-like aspect weird, to yeah. Charlotte's Web or something. It feels like it feels like the magic belongs. Whereas yeah. when this makes a hard left into He's Lewis talking, talking and, and getting a job and staying at <laughs> the Ritz, <laughs> the Ritz, <laughs> it's just very strange. It yeah. is. It's a bizarre. It's bizarre. But and, yeah, it feels like okay. Really, this is a book for kids from Philly and Boston and yeah. New York. Like if you've been to that zoo. Right, like if you've been to, you know, I've been to the pond, the swan boat, you know, that's something that you show people when you go visit Boston. Like, it's like, hey, that's the thing from Trumpet of the Swan. That's the place. That's mm. the boat. Those are the boats. That's the Ritz right there. That's the thing. Yeah, that's the zoo in Philadelphia. That's the whatever. And it's supposed to be like, okay, city kids, he's going to be in your city. You can feel cool and special because you know those places you're a kid you've everybody's been to the zoo everybody's been to this park whatever and now i want you to catch a glimpse of what i love which is montana and lakes and the canadian wild the canadian and, wild yeah. and stuff like that and yeah. to get that sort of magical experience that i love and had and um, maybe you'll fall in love with it too and come join me out in the in the wild so <laughs> i i don't know i i'm a little like you, I don't really care about that stuff very much, you know, whatever, but I didn't have trouble finishing the book. Yeah. No, me neither. It's well, a fun book. I do like those sorts of things, and I liked it here. I think it's fun. I totally agree with Jake. I think that this book both is completely um, empty of anything I care about, <laughs> while also just being yeah, fun to read. And if, if you're looking for something, if, you're, if your family reads a lot... And you're just looking for something that would pass the time to read in the evening because you've read out, ran out of everything else to read. This is a fine book to read. To I mean, me, it, it, enjoy it. it reminds me of, oh, what's a good analogy? It's like a later Paul McCartney album or something. Like this guy's, th that's not the perfect analogy, but it's like this guy's the best. And he also has nothing to say yeah. at this point. You know, it's like late Bob Dylan or something like this. Like this guy's still the best that's ever lived and it's still just like uh, based on uh, just pure technique he's got he's got more than in his pinky than anyone else you know has in their entire body but the verb's gone yeah like you actually you, what you want is an artist who is got still trying to figure fire. it out maybe maybe who's being amateurish in some ways but still has something that they're just well, they're desperate to say they're headed somewhere he's arrived he's there he doesn't have anything to say and he's just having fun. And that's fine. I don't begrudge him that. In fact, I enjoy it. I'm, I'd rather have this book than not. But it's, it's still a bizarre experience. Yeah, it's bizarre. And it's not, it's not what I would call compelling, you know. That's what have John to Updike says about it. He called it compelling? No. <laughs> you want me to read it? Yeah. While not quite so sprightly as Stuart Little and less rich in personalities and incident than Charlotte's Web, that pan to the barnyard life by a city humorous turned farmer, the Trumpet of the Swan has superior qualities of its own. It is the most spacious and serene of the three, the one most imbued with the author's sense of the precious instinctual heritage represented by wild nature. Well, I guess there's that. 
there's also a slapstick scene where a swan steals a trumpet from a music store. Yeah, I'm not quite sure I agree with Updike in the sense that this is just about the heritage of the wildness of nature but it has those moments especially when it was what's the little boy's name charlie would you like to be the guy who is reviewing an eb white book that you don't like no (laughs) i mean what are you supposed to do yeah like i mean again it would be like reviewing the latest dylan or something yeah like like how dare you like how dare you take be careful like don't take the risk and say what you think about this book because the world's gonna love it or aren't they or you know or is it gonna go like and is it actually courageous to be honest because if you're honest you might just feel like you're kicking someone in order to make build yourself up like and oh, it may look. really look like that oh yeah okay he's gonna say eb white stinks like right yeah come on you know like this is like thanks a lot dylan 17 <laughs> minutes on jfk but like come on man boomer you know it's, it's, it has kind of that <laughs> feeling to it and then i take a step back and i reflect on what it is we do in this show. (laughs) 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 We do it with class. Here's what a good review show should do. We are, in fact, reviewing E.B. White. Yeah, Yeah. and kicking him. But I was just, you know, in the moment, in the heat of the moment, uh, what's what's a guy like Updike supposed to do? I'm not sure we've kicked him yet. No, we haven't kicked him. And we've made, we've taken, people might not know this to listen to the show, especially the way I like to talk sometimes, but we have definitely made those kinds of considerations before. So, yeah, what else is there to say about this? I don't think there's anything else to say about it, Nathan. All right, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, (laughs) I liked it. (laughs) I think that's really all there is to say about it, is that it's, to get across the fact that this is a weird little... I didn't not like it. ...episodic, strange story that goes from... Starting in the wilds of Michigan. Is that what they're at? Michigan, right? Or no, it's Montana. Canada. Canada, that's Canada, right. Yeah. yeah Can, you're right. Montana. He goes to the wildlife thing in Montana. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's in Canada and it starts there and it seems like it's going to be a, a, a wilderness adventure story of this boy with his dad. And then suddenly it becomes about a swan and him trying to get a trumpet and learning to play it in Boston. Mm. So <laughs> he learns how to write with chalk and it's bizarre. Yeah. But not bizarre in an absurdist or even not bizarre in the sense that it seems trite and overwrought like, uh, oh, what's that one that we hated? That children's book. <sighs> Wrinkle in Time. Wrinkle in Time, yeah. Right. It's not, it's not bad that way. Mm-hmm. So. No, one thing you can say is for all the weird humor and different places it goes, it never feels like E.B. White's striving for effect. It always just feels like he's like, hey. This is a story that happened. <laughs> Pretty weird, huh? <laughs> <laughs> You'll never believe it. <laughs> it is funny. I mean, I guess that's one other observation I'll make. A lot of the little stuff he has about human nature, the boy that almost gets himself drowned, stuff like that is he's a good he's a good observer of the way that people act. Yeah. The way that the money exchanges hands when the swan comes back. Uh, to pay off the musician with the cop and everything. The judge has to sit there in the middle of the street and settle it. Yeah. There's, there's some nice moments like that. Yeah. Yeah. So it is very, uh, here's the one other thing I can think to say about this book. It's weird that it was written in 1970 and there's just, I don't remember even remember what they are, but there's certain moments where there'll be pop cultural references or things and it'll be like, wow, this book was written much later than I thought it was. Cause it's got that kind of, old-timey New Yorker feel to it. And when you realize, like, this is after the Beatles and this is after pop music and 
Yeah. E.B. White was a grumpy old man about <laughs> a lot of those things. <laughs> it's yep. kind of weird. It's a little bit like the moment in the James Bond film Goldfinger where James Bond says you can only ever listen to the Beatles with your earmuffs on. Like, James, that didn't age very well. <sighs> but you sure were cool back in 1965 or whatever. Sean Connery. But the Beatles have lasted longer than you did, sir. That's right, they have. Well, Brandon. Hey. I'm sorry, this is, well, it's not going to be a, long, a short episode by the time we get done with our donor shoutouts, but uh, any final thoughts about Trumpet of the Swan? Anything nah, else? I think people should read it. Have fun with your family. Yeah, read it. Has, did any of you guys try this with your kids? Ian took it up because he finished Charlotte's Web and loved Charlotte's Web. I read Charlotte's Web to the kids, and then Ian went back and reread Charlotte's Web, and he was waiting on me to get done with it so that he could start. You want some more of that? (laughs) Yeah, cool, son. (laughs) (laughs) You're in for a surprise. (laughs) Next up, Elements of Style. (laughs) Did he finish it? Do you know? I don't know, actually. Well, if you get in any- I, I suspect he did. He's not the kind of kid that abandons a book and he's on The Hobbit now, but he didn't have anything to say about it yeah, when he well, was done. That might tell you everything you needed to know. Yeah. Uh, Jake, final thoughts? Trump of the Swan? Should people read it? Sure. I don't expect Charlotte's Web. That's the only, that would be my caveat. Yeah. It's not a classic, but if you want a what if you want to watch a master of the form just having fun. Then- well, and if you're in Boston or Philly or yeah. something like that, then absolutely. Or if you like swans, like there's a whole group swaths of people that yeah. might really love this book simply yeah, because if you grew it, up in a neighborhood like I did, which had all these, was dotted with these ponds with ducks and swans and stuff. And that's kind of fun. All right, guys, I am going to say the name of our lovely patron. And you guys can then both at the same time, and I know you guys will be thinking exactly alike on this. Okay. Say the color that most represents this patron. Okay. So let's do it. As soon as I pull it up in my notes here. <laughs> Route it onto the lovebirds. Blue. <clears throat> we both have to say a color? At the same time. Oh. Hang on a second. <clears throat> Ready? Yep. Robert and Rhonda the Lovebirds. Tropical Rainforest. Yep. They're exactly on the same page. The Artful Anthony Dodger. Purple. Jungle Green. Little Anthony Cigar Store. Orange. The Immortal Chelsea E. Forest Green. Green. Jimmy Beam and Little Annie Oakley. Fern. Violet. (laughs) Lily of the Valley. Asparagus. Black. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Lily. Andrew and Esther the Lovebirds. Shadow. The Keith Master. Beaver. David's Mighty Men Trucking. Sepia. Orange. John and Jill and Little Baby Matt. Did I already say orange? Brown. I have no idea. Turquoise. Jay and Katie, you are cold and love cheese, and also C.S. Lewis and Gluting till we have faces. Pine green. Now just a little break. Oh, Brendan, what's your color for them? Amaranth purple. Amaranth purple, my favorite. Now just a little break to tell people how they can become a donor. You go to patreon.com forward slash the booking. You sign up today for at least $10. We will shout you out as we're doing to all these fine, lovable, wonderful folks. There we go. If we, you get us up to the next level, what is it, Jake, uh, 150? No, 150. If you get us up to $150, <laughs> uh, no, if you get us up to 150 plus another zero in there, we will be forced to try and work King Arthur in as well. What? ASAP. So 
if you really want to make life difficult for us this year and make us have to come up with some kind of awesome 2000 graphic novel or sci-fi or something reward level, then you can do that. And Brendan even has a good idea of how we'll bridge Tolkien and King Arthur. I do, but you won't find out unless you get us there. Yeah. Or you sign up for the paywall because we talk about it on the video that we just did. Now, where were we? I don't know. Anyone remember? Nope. Nope. Did we do David's Mighty Men Trucking? Probably not. Caribbean Green. Lime Green. John and Jill, Little Baby Max? Salmon. Oh, sure we did. We did Jay and Katie who are cold and love cheese. Uh, What about Fairy Princess of Wonder and Happiness Mother Beth? Mountain Meadow. Console Prime Adam. Screaming Green. Jeremy the Dark Hood, Lord of Death. Medium Purple. Nathan Not Me. Magenta. Maya. Gold. Coral. <laughs> Ryan the Red Avenger and Judith of the Ladies of Justice. Danny the Dude. DJ Sammy G. Hot Salmon. Big thank you to Danny or Danny and Benny. Benny and Dana Tiberius. Tan. Pacific Blue. Eric and Catherine from Yawn. Now, I've never Rick. known how to say this. Is it uh, Soft Sea Cerulean? Probably. Cerulean? 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 I want to say Cerulean. Cerulean, I think. Soft Sea Cerulean. Oh, Royal Blue. Oh, boy. I lost my place again. Uh, okay, Eric and Catherine from Beyond Window Breaks. Indigo. Robin Egg Blue. Professor and Lady X. Lavender's Green. Dylan Dylan. Lavender's Blue. Lavender's Green. Dylan Dylan. I love you too. Chartreuse. Granny Smith Apple. Noah Constrictor. Inchworm. Mare Cheap Cheap Cheap. Canary. Red. The Fair and Fragrant Maiden Chloe. Unmellow Yellow. Six Pack Sick with a Mean Attack. And Sun Black. Anthony, who's called and hates life, liberty, and the pursuit of cheese. Neon Carrot. He's a cheese hater. <laughs> Jiu-Jitsu, Jeffrey, the Texas Ranger. Raw Deep Sienna. Rachel. 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 Cornflower Blue. Blue-Green. Leopard Tank Thomas. I think i said some of these before. Aqua. <laughs> Denim for like Leopard Tank Thomas. Midnight Ninja Ellen. Turquoise Bisque. Blue. What'd you say? Bisque. Oh, Bisque. Queen Kingetta. Olive Green. Green. Return of the Jedediah. Green, yellow. Chocolate. Jay of Rack and Ruin. Yellow. Dark Orchard. Dark Orchard? Orchard. Or- orchid. <laughs> Dark Orchid. Welcome to my orchid. Uh, I said Jay Brackenrun. Timothy the Rider of, at Dawn. Fuchsia. Goldenrod. American Kate the Camp Champ Kings. We were warm and love bees. Yellow Dear Orange. Red. Maddie, 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 Matt, man. Mango Red. Tango. Sweet Jamie Sunshine. Burnt Orange. Silver Gray. Tyler, the Keeper of Eternal Darkness. Gray. Teal. And Laura, the Keeper of Eternal Light. Navy Orange Blue. Red. Cold Steel Cody. Cornflower. Mint Cream. <laughs> Mint Cream. Oh, Jacqueline, the librarian by I'm sorry, Jacqueline. Jacqueline, the librarian barbarian. Aquamarine. John Bombadillo, Bomb Diggity, and Captain Tennille, his mate. Yellow green. (laughs) Yellow green, yuck. And I said like. Sorry, John Bombadillo, Bomb Diggity, and Captain Tennille, his mate. You got the short end of the color stick there. Booking today, produced by me, executive produced by Jake and me. It's a fraction of the way through a 120 count box of Crayola crayon colors. Well, there nice. you go. We'll we do maybe, this one maybe, again. Maybe we'll have to do this one again. It was such a rousing success. We'll be back with more booking next week. Bye, folks. Bye.